All right, well, we are on Lesson 10 today in our ongoing study of pneumatology. That's not the study of pneumatics, right? That's the study of the Holy Spirit. And today, focusing specifically on the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ. So we're on page 64, the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ. Remember last week, uh, we talked about the Holy Spirit sort of generally, and now we're into some of his ministry. So first of all, the Holy Spirit performed a miraculous conception in the womb of Mary, resulting in the incarnation of the Son of God. Thus, God becoming man and the existence of the God-man were the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm sure you're familiar with the passages in uh, Matthew and Luke where um, Mary and then Joseph were, were uh, given that rather strange news that Mary was going to uh, conceive, or in the case of Matthew or uh, um, uh, Joseph, that she already had conceived. Um, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, in Luke 1, the second one you have there, which is chronologically the first, um, the angel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God. So, that's not... um, as much clarity, perhaps, as she would want, or even that we would sometimes want. We have questions like, how in the world? But that's not for us to know, other than the Holy Spirit uh, superintended that, um, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Um, And so the Holy Spirit was there. He was doing that. He was making that happen. And then... He explained that to Joseph in Matthew 1. Uh, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because he was already having questions, right? For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So... Uh, A, it's important for us to know that the Holy Spirit was active in the Incarnation. But B, um, both Mary and Joseph were explained that this was a work of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't ask, who's that? I mean, they understood enough to know that this was God uh, at work. And they were being given the expl- enough explanation to um, to be obedient and thankful. So a bit of a mystery, but it just gives an example of one of the many things that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit was involved with, particularly in relation to the life and ministry of Christ. And so the second one is Jesus Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit in his preaching miracle-working, and healing ministry. And so the middle one there, taken from Luke 4.1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. So right after his baptism, he went into the, uh, the wilderness area close to the Jordan, and it um, says very specifically he was full of the Holy Spirit. And we will talk about that as it applies to us. We, you know, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, right? Ephesians 5.18. Um, and one of the prime examples of that in Scripture is Christ. And it says here specifically he was led about by the Spirit, in the wilderness. 
So even Jesus uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, um, uh, active in uh, cooperating with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more that can be said about that, even his miracles, and we're going to look at at a couple of them here. Um, He didn't go about performing miracles willy-nilly, just as a show, right? Um, Each time had a purpose. And um, even his exercise of other prerogatives of deity, um, he didn't use, again, willy-nilly. It was as the situation required it and as the Holy Spirit led him, um, he could do things like, and and would do things like walk on water and um, uh, raise someone from the dead. and so the Holy Spirit was very active in the life of Christ. Okay, could someone read for me uh, Luke 4.18, which is a quote from Isaiah 61. Got that? Okay. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, had, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. <clears throat> he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. So, you remember the context here in Luke 4, Jesus um, was in the synagogue and he was asked to read from the scriptures and they were working their way through and uh, in God's providence they were ready for this portion to be read and he was invited to come up and, and read it and he read it and then he said, you remember what he said? Yeah, today this this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, and what's interesting is uh, he, he, he stopped the reading there. Had he continued, uh, the prophecy was talk, is go- talks about uh, things that would be fulfilled later. But he stopped uh, where, where the things that he came in this in his uh, first coming to fulfill to preach the gospel to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set free those who are downtrodden. Just um, uh, the variety of things he was doing, but how does it say he was doing it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And uh, speaking, of course, of the Holy Spirit's role in in working uh, through Christ in his incarnate state. Okay, let's go to number three here. The Holy Spirit led Christ to the cross and raised Christ from the dead. And so could someone read our memory verse there, Romans 8, 11? Okay. <clears throat> but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Right, so when it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, uh, it's, he's writing to uh, believers here, and that if really means since. It's the way we often use the word, if you know, that's true, then this is also true. Well, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, We'll talk more about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit next week, but um, Paul's not asking or wondering if they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He says, because the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, uh, he will also give life to your moral bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So, the main point in our context today is who did that? According to that passage, yeah, the Holy Spirit 
was at least very active, right, in, in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So when you think of it as the very beginning of his, his uh, walk on earth in the incarnation, all the way to the resurrection from the dead, the Holy Spirit was active, very central in the ministry of Christ. And then, Hebrews 9.14, could someone read that? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the reference to the spirit there? What did the spirit do? Yeah, it's kind of facilitator, right? Yeah. Through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish. Yeah. So you see the whole trinity at work here, don't you? And what often, as is the case in, in scripture, when it says God, sometimes from the, con- from the context, we know it's referring to specifically God the Father, like here. Uh, and it was through the Spirit, through the, the, the because he's led by the Spirit, right? Um, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, Christ was, he knew why he came. Um, in his humanity, of course, he struggled, as you and I would, toward the end, you know, great agony as he approached the, the possibility of being, becoming sin on our behalf, experiencing the wrath of God for our sin, not his own, being separated for a period from the Father with whom he'd had eternal fellowship. It wasn't so much the physical pain that was anguishing for him, it was the prospect of being separate from the Father, bearing the sin of people who sinned, not him. So um, the Holy Spirit, and God even sent angels to comfort him and, and to strengthen him uh, when he was in that agony. Uh, but the Holy Spirit was very much a part of of just like he does us, he um, gives us reassurance. He's a comforter, right? Uh, he leads us through um, challenging times, uh, strengthening us. Uh, he had a similar role with Christ, particularly in his uh, humanity. Okay, all right, let's go to number four. The Holy Spirit always seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit seeks to provoke interest in and devotion to Christ. And so can someone read the first of those passages, John 16, Alex? But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So one of the um, one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit these days that. Um, you know, post the ascension of Christ, that that um, that we participate in is he prompts those who are saved to glorify Christ, as opposed to glorifying himself, the Holy Spirit. Um, not that he's not glorious and and so on but he's particularly focused on bringing glory to Christ and um, so he prompts us uh, to do that 
Notice he's referred to here in several other places as the spirit of truth. And uh, there are a number of, even in the upper room discourse here, uh, there are a number of, uh, I believe even there, there are a number of titles like that, spirit of truth. Um, I'm trying to remember what some of the other ones are, but uh, a very diversified role and associated with things as key, of course, as truth. He's going to be revealing truth. He's going to be um, uh, prompting us in the truth, bringing to memory, the, in the apostles' memory, uh, after the resurrection of Christ or after the ascension of Christ, uh, he will... Uh, remind them of things Christ said so that the, the teaching of Christ would become the teaching of the apostles, um, the spirit of truth. Okay. Any other insights there? Questions? Yes. So, so in that passage that you read, it seemed like the Holy Spirit is like a translator. It's almost like it's saying that he's passive, meaning he's not going to initiate conversation but it's almost like he's listening to conversation, I guess, coming from the spiritual direction and then translating it so that we can understand it. That's true. You know, it is an interesting analogy, isn't it? Um, yeah, it says, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So um, what would the analogy of that be, at least in their experience, in Old Testament times, particularly? the role of a prophet, right, who would be a communicator of what God had revealed, and now he's going to be the mouthpiece for communicating this to others. And um, that's something of, of the, the role here. Yeah? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Christ says the same thing. Where... He only says and does what the Father told him. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, he said that, I think, in, um, also in John, I think in, to the Pharisees and his detractors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a good, uh, at at least in regard, understanding the Trinity, that there's a a hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And that each spirit glorifies Christ, Christ glorifies the Father. Yep. Yep. Good point. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yes. And Philippians says the Father will glorify the Son. Mm-hmm. That His name will be above all names. Yep. Yeah, the Godhead. You know, there's interesting. Um, the 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 balance between uniqueness yet unity yet inseparability yet. Um, Hierarchy, distinctiveness. You know, Jesus went in his high priestly prayer in John 17, um, was reminded of the glory that they shared together from eternity past. And um, so, this this passage and the implications of this passage. Um, are very critical when you consider uh, religious practices, uh, even denominations whose uh, main focus seems to be glorifying the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Which is a shame because there's so much misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and we need to um, not diminish his role, and yet Christ himself said that the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. And um, we ought to stick with Scripture rather than um, you know, what may seem like a a good doctrine, a good practice, or anything like that, um, 
uh, if it's not consistent with scripture, uh, we should realign ourselves to scripture. We're going to talk much about the ministry of the Holy Spirit beginning uh, next week. Uh, Specific works of the Holy Spirit in our lives and um, I think I may have mentioned a week or two ago when we started this that there's so much misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. Even among um, uh, genuine believers and um, uh, we need to be sure not to just put him on a shelf and uh, disregard his work that he's doing even in us and through us. We need to cooperate with that. Okay, uh, letter D here. I'm on page 65. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start talking a bit about his role in our lives here and then continue on in the next couple of weeks. So a unique work of the Holy Spirit in this age began at Pentecost You remember um, what we're referring to here is the, it was an annual feast, it was the Pentecost where the church began, right, after the ascension of Christ. The unique work of the Holy Spirit in this age began at Pentecost when he came from the Father, as promised by Christ, to initiate and complete the building of the body of Christ, the church, right? So, uh... Let's read that first one there in John 7. Could someone? Right, so Jesus is giving them a heads up of what's to be. Uh, it's not yet time because... Uh, Jesus had not yet um, gone to the cross, resurrected, ascended. Those things were needed before the Holy Spirit would come. Uh, In John 14, that next passage, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Again, that term. Whom the... Uh, world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you now, and he will be in you. So again, future. The indwelling didn't happen until later. And then again, our memory verse here, John fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, So again, here we are in the upper room. Uh, Jesus is referring to um, the helper. He gives him sort of a uh, descriptive name. That word helper is is, um, uh, sometimes translated comforter, right? Uh, Paracletos, one who comes alongside to strengthen and encourage. And then he says, whom I will send to you from the Father. Again, you see the Trinity at work here? That is the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father. Um, I don't know if you remember when we first started talking about the Godhead, um, and when we spoke about the Father, now that was actually last quarter, I think, wasn't it? But um, the, the statement we have says uh, the Father um, neither proceeds nor is sent. Jesus was sent. The Spirit proceeds uh, from the Father. And that gives you some insight into the sort of the inner relations within the Godhead, uh, the hierarchy even. Um, But anyway, Jesus here is speaking of 
something that still has not yet happened. He's been preparing them on several occasions, and then he will particularly uh, down in, well, actually, we don't have it here, but um, in Acts 1, he's about to ascend into heaven, and they, they, um, the disciples are saying, well, is now the time you're going to establish your kingdom here on earth? And he says, uh, no, you don't need to be worried about the timing of that, but here's what you do need to worry about, or not be worried about, but be obedient to, which is that um, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You know, I've been talking to you about this Holy Spirit coming to you and equipping you and comforting you, and you will be my witnesses. Uh, both here in Jerusalem and, and so on. And so he's, he's preparing them, telling them to hold their horses, in so many words, hold their horses until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then uh, ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, I think it's the last day of the feast, uh, we read in Acts 2, let's go down to Acts 2, 1 through 4. Could someone read that? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, uh, uh, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be coming. He would be indwelling them. He would be empowering them. And he didn't give them a lot of detail about, or even when, particularly, but how, what's, how are we going to know, and, and so on. But do you think they had any doubt at this point? <laughs> no, it was pretty clear that this was a work of God. Um, and what's, what's key here is that um, not only was it an experience for them, they, they say, oh, this is God's work. He's, he's fulfilling what he promised. He's, he's going to, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to um, uh, help us remember everything Jesus taught us. Uh, it's, he's going to continue to lead us and teach us, comfort us, and so on. That's all exciting, but immediately, you know, they go out and um, uh, Peter preaches this, this sermon. Now, the folks there weren't gathered for church. Folks there were gathered for the, the, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, and, or Pentecost, I'm sorry. And um, Peter boldly gets up and gives that address. Um, and kind of reviews the, the ministry and, and, and the, the, um, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and he doesn't pull any punches. He, um, he, he's, he's addressing the people who gave Christ over to be, to be uh, crucified. And uh, the Holy Spirit was very clearly speaking, working through him to bring conviction to a lot of people and over 3,000 people got saved. And in pursuing or subsequent uh, weeks, uh, many thousands more were coming to Christ because of the the Spirit working through people like Peter, uh, but also working in the hearts of those who were listening to establish his church. Um, and 
So in our context today, the important event here is the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell, but more importantly, as we're going to see, um, to baptize believers into the body of Christ. We're going to look in our next section, the theology of that, but the the chronology of it in Acts is such that uh, here in Acts 2, it's the first time when uh, people were ushered into, baptized into the body of Christ. Okay. Now, what's what's unique about that gathering of people? It was a visible work. Usually, the Holy Spirit can't, like Jesus said, it's the rushing of the wind. You can't see it. You can only see the effects. This time, there were tongues of fire. Well, sort of like fire. I mean, that's the closest they could come to analogy, right? Um, yeah. Okay. So, so the the event had some very unique characteristics. There were. Uh, what appeared to be tongues of fire on the on the heads of the um, not just the disciples but all who were gathered in that upper room, which was quite a large number actually, um, men and women, and the sound, of course, uh, was clear to them. Uh, but then they also began each speaking in other languages. Languages they clearly didn't know, and when they were heard by the crowd assembled, uh, these people who were quite obviously not from all those areas where those languages were spoken, and yet the hearers were. Um, There were people from all over gathering in Jerusalem for that feast. Um, and it says explicitly in, in Acts all the places they're from and all the languages they were hearing other people who were clearly not of those um, languages uh, speaking them what's their immediate thought? Well their immediate thought was before they processed everything all oh, these people are just drunk right? Um, but when they heard these languages and the proclaiming of of the gospel, the truth of God, the the uh, uh, the con- what the the convicting word of the Spirit of God in their own language, uh, they they can only make one conclusion: rightly, this is a work of God, right? Um, and so Peter brought explanation about all that in his sermon. Um, but what's key is all those people who were um, ushered into the body of Christ on that day and uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, they were all Jews. Right, the disciples, the close followers—they were all Jews. Um, and it's pretty clear that most, if not all, of them assumed that salvation w- was through the Jews. Um, and even to the point that, in order to be a true believer, you first had to be a Jew. And you sort of tack this on to Judaism. I don't know how much many of them thought about it, but uh, by the time you get to Acts 15, it's very clear that there's a huge debate. Is it necessary for, say, Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians? And there's a great uh, council brought together in Jerusalem to, to bring clarity to that question. And, of course, the answer is no. How do they know the answer is no? Well, let's continue reading in Acts 8. 
So I'm going to read that. It's the last one on the page there. Okay. Um, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So this is an interesting development in the early church. Um, what was the relationship of Jews and Samaritans? So the Samaritans were sort of half-breeds, half-Jews. Uh, they had intermarried with non-Jews during the um, exile period and, and so on. And not only that, but developed quite a um, pagan worship system and, and so on. And the, the devout Jews looked at them with disgust and, and uh, didn't want any part to do with them. Um, Samaria was that province between Judea, where Jerusalem is, and Galilee up to the north. And so to go from Galilee to Judea, you would, we would normally go through Samaria, but no, we're not going through Samaria. We're going around Samaria to get down to Jerusalem. Um, so hated were the Samaritans. And yet, um, when we think of the word Samaritan today, what do we think of? The good Samaritan. <laughs> because Jesus made an example of what being a neighbor was. And strategically, he used the Samaritan as an example of that. Well, here, in the very early church, we've got some Samaritans coming to Christ. Is that good news or bad news? It's good news, but um, they didn't necessarily know how to handle this. But when they heard that people were uh, receiving the word of God, they were responding to the gospel message, these Samaritans. Um, they wanted to be sure that it was a genuine salvation, I'm sure. Uh, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they had not yet, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, um, it's hard to know exactly what kind of uh, events transpired there, uh, why there was a baptism only in the name of Jesus, rather than following Christ's command to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but in any case, fortunately, several of the apostles went to check out the situation, make sure these people were genuinely saved, prayed for them. And when they did, uh, they began laying their hands on them, it says, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't specifically say here, how did they know? How did the apostles know at this point that they... Uh, were receiving the Holy Spirit. Possibly, doesn't specifically say, but it wasn't just the apostles who knew. In the context here, there is a, um, you remember Simon the sorcerer? Mm -hmm. Who in the verses just before this um, uh, was also responding to the gospel and made a profession of faith. And he's present when all this is happening. He's watching and the very next verse, it says that um, he saw that they had received the Spirit. And he wanted the ability to do that for other people, right? And um, Peter, I think it was Peter, <coughs> rebuked him because you know, he thought that the gift of God could be bought and sold and so on. Um, so it's not entirely clear whether he was genuinely saved or not, but the point is that he recognized even that, that they were receiving the Holy Spirit, and he wanted, he wanted in on this. Um, and so there had to be some manifestation 
for the onlookers, both the apostles and others, some manifestation that led them to be confident that the Holy Spirit indeed was now indwelling these new believers. And before we explain how, let's move to the next page, page 66. And we're continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, someone want to read that first one from Acts 10? Okay. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can ye? So, uh, back in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit indwelt, baptized the um, Jewish believers. Right at the very beginning. They're all Jews. Then we saw in... Acts, what was it, 8, that uh, now Samaritans also were coming to Christ, also being uh, baptized into the body of Christ. And now here, Gentiles. I mean, you think Samaritans are bad. What about Gentiles? <laughs> right? Um, and, of course, you remember how God prepared Peter to um, be ready for this? You know, he um, saw in a vision God bringing down this, this sheet or this blanket or whatever it was containing all these unclean animals. And what did God say to him? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. Are you kidding? I'm a faithful Jew. And um, I, I think it happened like three times or something like that. And... Uh, I don't. I think he got the main message, but he was not sure. So, what am I supposed to? What's my takeaway here? Well, right about the time he's thinking that, there's a knock on the door, right? And Cornelius is, um, who, who's a centurion, a Gentile Roman soldier. Um, uh, his servant, who was told to go to Joppa and. Uh, asked for this, this guy named Simon, Peter, and explained the story, and Peter's now putting two and two together. God is at work here to show me that what God has declared clean, I am not to treat as unclean. And the takeaway, the application of this, is in terms of um, who can be saved. Everybody. So everybody, yeah. So it's not just Jews, it's not even just Samaritans, but even Gentiles. And so it was helpful to Peter to have that interaction with God beforehand to prepare him, because where's his mind apart from that? It's basically the Jews, right? Uh, And he wasn't alone in this, but Peter being sort of the um, spokesperson and... and, uh, leader among equals here, uh, God chose to give him a very personal um, orientation to what's about to happen. And so Peter goes there in obedience. He thinks he sees it. But what does God do? He does the same thing with the Gentile believers that he did, certainly with the Jews, and I would argue also with the Samaritans, it pretty much had to be, that there was a physical manifestation of a spiritual truth, a spiritual event that was happening right now. And Peter, being the great mathematician, put two and two together, right? And he says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. How did he know they had received the Holy Spirit? Well, in this case, it specifically says 
they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So the same thing happened to these people as happened to the Jews in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Um, in each of these cases, there's sort of a new frontier. First it was just the Jews, then it happened again with the Samaritans, and now very significantly with Gentiles, making it clear there's nobody left. Everybody is now um, open. Everyone is, is uh, um, eligible, if you will, to uh, receive salvation. It's not this us versus them kind of thing. It's this is for everybody. Yeah, Rex. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witness to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a progression. And that's what the Holy Spirit followed that out. And you see that happening here. Yes, sir. Right. Although, um, I think of Maryland as the remotest part of the earth now. <laughs> No, there are a lot of remotest parts of the earth out there, uh, even today. Um, but yeah, you, you read the book of Acts, and that's what you see happening. Um, begins in Jerusalem, ends, well, in Rome. Uh, but, uh, but that's the progression of the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm guessing, I, I don't remember any evidence of this in scripture, but I'm guessing that God superintended that in stages to make it a bit more digestible for the Jews. If there had been some occasion where there was Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles all together, I can't imagine what occasion that would have been, <laughs> they wouldn't be together. But even if there were, it probably would have been a little bit harder for them to digest what's going on here than doing it in stages like this. And it was fairly a uh, short amount of time. I mean, we're talking, uh, I don't know, probably no more than a year, uh, if, if that. Um, but it really served to prepare people for the significance of what's happening here, I think. Uh, it's just my... My presumption. Anyway, yes. Did the uh, Samaritans consider themselves to be Jews? No. <laughs> no, you, you read um, Acts 4 with the woman at the well who is a Samaritan, right? Jesus uh, pushing the envelope there. And um, she was very clear that, you know, you Jews and us Samaritans, you know, we worship in different ways and, and whatever. Uh, they understood that they were different and incompatible even antagonistic, antagonistic. So even though they both say, said that their father is Abraham. They know that, that historically uh, they're from the, the, the same um, but Muslims today would say that they're from Abraham but they know they're a lot different. So um, that wasn't enough. In fact, Jesus was scolding the Pharisees for saying, well, our father is Abraham. And Jesus said, well, no, you don't know what being a child of Abraham is all about at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, does that help? Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah, yeah Solomon had what? If you count the concubines, a thousand wives. No, no, uh, and that's the point. God, God told the Israelites um, to not intermarry with these pagans out there because they're going to lead you astray. And what did Solomon do? That very thing, a thousand times over. So yeah, but that that was not the origin of the Samaritans, though. Uh, that came actually before, uh, Solomon was before the Samaritans began. Um, but a similar problem, yeah, intermarrying, 
um, leaving genuine faith. Yes. So he, he, Jesus, when referring to the Holy Spirit as a helper, says, I will send you another helper. Yeah. So um, he uh, was kind of preparing them for the fact that um, the ministry that he's been having with them in person is going to continue, except that he's going to not only be with you, he's going to be in you. And so that's going to make it possible to do far more than just being with you. Um, In that sense, when Jesus ascended, they don't right away go and preach the gospel. So Jesus commanded them to stay there and wait for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that make us equipped for the spread of the gospel and have the power of God in us that we can exactly. really share right. Jesus. Um, and so they waited. Fortunately, it wasn't more than 10 days. <laughs> um, but when he came, it became very clear, this is God's doing, this is what he promised, let's be active doing what he's commanded us to do. Very good. Well, let's read a couple more passages here. Because uh, I want to get at the theology here. The second passage in Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? So, that word baptism, baptized, what does that mean? Literally, what the word means is to be immersed, to be dunked, to be dipped into. Um, It's it's not a word that has its origins in Scripture. It was already a a known word. Um, um, You think of it as sort of when something is dyed, like you take a, a, a... uh, a piece of fabric, and you put it into a dye, you baptize it in the dye, and it comes out looking like what? The color of the dye, right? That was baptized into that dye. And it bears the mark of that dye. You see the analogy? We're baptized into Christ, it says. So, uh, before I ask that question, let's go to the next passage. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Could someone read that? For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Okay, again, baptized into one body. The body here is referring to what? the body of Christ, or the church, right? For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. And by Greeks here it means what? Everybody's not a Jew. So it means everybody who is saved is baptized into Christ Jesus. Um, All made to drink of one spirit. So, when he commanded his disciples to um, go into all the world and baptize, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is that the baptism it's talking about here? No. No. That, the baptism in Matthew 28 the command is a water baptism. And we see the examples of that being fulfilled throughout the book of Acts and, I guess, elsewhere, um, as people would go into water and be baptized as an outward symbol of their inner um, baptism, which is what's referred to here. It's the spiritual baptism. We're baptized into, not into water, but into Christ. We're baptized into the body of Christ, the church. 
were placed into, fully identified with Christ. When does that happen? The moment of salvation. Justification, right? Um, we are placed into, and in um, Romans 6.3, for example, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, and then in 1 Corinthians 12, for, one by, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. And so it's not uh, an exclusive thing. In fact, we'll see next week, uh, when we talk more specifically about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that it's something that's true of every believer, that he indwells inside of us. Uh, And that's an ongoing reality. This baptism is a one-time thing. We have been baptized into Christ. That spiritual baptism, we're placed into Christ. As you read particularly the, the epistles of Paul, often, he, very often, he uses this term, those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ. That's shorthand for saying those who have been baptized into Christ, and it's equivalent to saying all true believers, <laughs> right? Uh, we're in Christ. When God looks at us, what does he see? Christ. His righteousness is on our account. Our sins have already been transferred to his account. We're in Christ. And what places us in Christ is the Holy Spirit's placing us, baptizing us, immersing us, identifying us completely with Christ. That die is on us. (laughs) We are died. We are now, well, that's an interesting play of words. The other kind of die. You know, we have died to self, We've been dyed with the blood of Christ. We now come out looking like Christ. Yes. Yes. So, so um, and, and places like uh, Romans 6, Paul is saying, since you have died with Christ um, uh, and you've been uh, baptized into Christ, you should live that way. <laughs> yes. Make sure that you understand. Right. Consider. Right. Good. And then uh, Ephesians 1. I'll go ahead and read it. In him also, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit um, in a couple of weeks. But anyway, that happens really at the same time. It's, it's sort of a one, when we're placed into Christ, we're giving... The Holy Spirit himself serves as something of a seal, um, a promise, um, a down payment is sort of another way scripture makes reference to it, um, a pledge. This is the beginning of all that I've got in store for you, believer, God says, um, You now have the Holy Spirit in you, and because he's never going to leave, you are sealed. You are secure in Christ. And all the promises of the inheritance in Christ that I promised are are yours, and they will be, they will culminate uh, when you go to heaven to be with him forever. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is your seal. And when God puts that seal on, no one can take it off. We are sealed in Christ. It's, it's a done deal. And that's encouraging. That's assuring. That's, um, 
a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it, it all happens at that really at the same time, we're placed into Christ and he seals us there. No one can take us away. Okay, any questions so far? Including Satan. Nobody can t separate us from Christ. Okay, so I want to look at the application question number two, real quick as we close. What's the significance of John 16, 13 through 16 for our worship? And this is, we read this, this is where Christ referred to the Holy Spirit coming and um, uh, he will glorify me, Christ said. What's the significance of that for our worship? Well, we need to imitate it. Okay. And also glorify um, Christ and uh, through the Spirit, uh, glorify him in our worship. Yeah. And even, even seeking the Holy Spirit's help to honor Christ appropriately and fully. I was just going to say it's also a warning um, that if we are taught and it does not glorify Christ and we know it's not from the spirit of truth, we know that it's not from God. Good, yeah. So it's it's both what to do and what not to do. Okay. Good. Well, let's close in prayer.